Welcome to the Osprey Podcast. How do you like the thought of being capable of reading the weather and the rest of the natural world around you in such detail that you can act as your own compass whenever you need to? Well, today we'll be covering exactly that and more with renowned author, the natural navigator, Tristan Gooley. I'm your host, Marcus Brown, and this is the Osprey Podcast. Tristan Gooley, it is a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to uh, be be with you guys. I use Osprey Kit, um, not every time I I step outdoors, but but many many times over the years. Nice, brilliant. That's what that's what I like to hear. That's the perfect beginning to one of our episodes, in my opinion. <laughs> so it's going very well so far. Um, so you you are to to kind of set up the episode a little bit. You're you're a very renowned author known as the natural navigator, um, extremely knowledgeable about the outdoors, about nature, about nature's systems and the way we interact with them. You've got a new book out on the 8th of April called The Secret World of Weather. Um, could you tell us a little bit to start off with about what the new book's about, how it kind of differs from previous works, um, and, and we'll go from there. Yes, um, uh, I'm, I'm sort of known professionally as the natural navigator, and that's a, a shorthand, really, in the sense that my work is about finding your, finding your way through nature, but it, it's really about the clues and signs. So all of my work is based on the, the, the quite simple philosophy that everything we see or sense outdoors is a clue or a sign. And then what I do every two or three years is I just shift the uh, perspective I'm coming from you know, it's that same philosophy, that same idea. I'm just coming at it from different angles. So for the past three years, I mean, to be honest, all my life, weather's been been part of it. It, it is for every outdoors person, of course. But for the last three years, I've I've kind of got really deep into into weather signs. And what's what's um, you know, really exciting uh, about this this book and this perspective for me is that it, the, the title, "The Secret World," secret is is overused, but I do feel that this is this is secret in the sense that. I am trying to take people into uh, uh, an understanding of the weather that, that I would say the vast majority of even experienced outdoors people will not have been into. And what do I mean by that? Well, if we if we look or listen to a weather forecast, it's talking about the weather, you know, sometimes very accurately, but it's talking about the weather 50 to 100 feet above our heads. And <laughs> by definition, that's not where we are. So this book is, is telling us what, you know, if, the way I put it sometimes, if you go on a 10-minute walk, uh, you're going to experience 10, 10 different types of weather. You know, the, the wind will genuinely change 10 times. So a good experiment that, that sort of demonstrates what's going on in, in one small way in the book is if you look at the weather forecast and it tells you, let's say there's a wind, you can expect a wind of 10 miles an hour from the southwest. Step outside and go for a 10-minute walk, and I guarantee you you'll have 10 winds, and it's quite possible all 10 uh, don't feature in the forecast you've been given. So my book's all about the stuff we actually experience what it means and all the fun clues and signs within that. Brilliant. It's it's noticeable right from the off. I, one of the first things I was going to say, I, I'm I'm not that far in. I'm currently learning about latent heat. It is a very note. It's noticeable straight away that the focus is on, as you said, it's it's a human experience rather than these kind of macro level um, forecasts that we're used to reading. It's also I've I've already found it to be just really quite enjoyably written. I have to say, like um, there was there was a point where you said uh, energy can move and change form, but it never disappears. This is a law of the universe, and we don't break those. <laughs> and I, I love that. <laughs> it's, so, it's so fun to hear you thinking that back because there are there are quite a few sentences in a book of this size that sail through all the stages of editing without comment from anyone. And they just end up in the, and then there are other, there are other sentences that get thrown around and that one's been thrown around transatlantically. You know, I've had, I've had conversations with my editor in the UK, uh, more than one editor in the UK and, and editors in the U S as well about that, because just in that one example, it's, it's a, it's, it's an example of quite British humor in the sense that, mm, yeah. um, some people would think I'm I'm talking incredibly literally there, but I think every every Brit would would instinctively sort of know that it's slightly tongue in cheek, as in it would be a bit naughty to do that. 
I, I suppose my, my first question was going to be, was it, were you making a deliberate um, step away from this kind of macro view of things and trying to move more towards literally what you see and feel when you're outside? I, I take the, uh, from your intro, I, I get the impression that that's exactly what you were doing. Yes, I've, I've tried to do uh, two things in the book and, and hopefully succeeded. And one is to be uh, pretty thorough in terms of weather signs. You know, if um, so, all of my all of my work is is a combination of my personal experience and then, like every author, standing on the shoulders of giants. So, I don't claim to be the first person who's gone looking for weather signs. In fact, I I quote the ancient Greeks in the book quite a lot. So, so part of it is personal experience, and a lot of it is 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 standing on the shoulders of going back two three thousand years. Anybody who has come up with a valuable weather sign, uh, and it can be an academic writing two years ago, or it, or it can be, you know, you know, buried in some classic poetry. It doesn't matter to me. So long as the sign works, it, it is in this book. Um, uh, and the other thing is, is the secret world part of it, which is the signs that are really close to us, you know, just things. And a lot of my work is taking things that are right under our nose, but which we maybe haven't looked at in that way or thought about in that way. So an example is everybody's seen moss. Everybody's seen moss uh, at the base of trees. Uh, has anybody really um, sort of paused to think that that's telling them how how damp the air they're in is? You know, do we need to know how damp the air is? Quite often, no. But it's just a lot of it is just making people pause and go, oh wow, suddenly the the, the moss is up to shoulder height on the trees. Oh, that kind of explains why, you know, if you choose that spot to camp, for example, you are going to uh, mm. you are going to feel quite moist. It's yeah, it's interesting how it um, it unlocks uh, an extra level of enjoyment. Um, to, in in terms of when you're, we've all been doing our lunch walks around the around the block for the past year. You know, not being able to go much further than that. And I I'm quite excited to actually just start employing things that I've read in the book, and just pay a little bit more attention as I'm going around the block and going, ah, what does that mean? Like, is there something to be taken from that? You know, it's 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 really really interesting stuff. Thanks. That's that's wonderful to hear because that is that is the acid test for me and. Uh, a conversation that that all of us um, who love the outdoors find ourselves in very very regularly is is this idea of 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 connection and noticing and uh, whether we're talking about well being or practical things. And I come from it very much from the perspective that if you say to somebody you should spend more time outdoors or you should connect with nature, you will have no impact whatsoever. Um, I mean, psychologists have pretty much proven that the word should is, is pretty much pointless. It doesn't, doesn't change anybody's behavior. So what I'm doing is, <laughs> is hopefully presenting the signs in a way that are, are you know, they're, they're catnip. You can't resist it. So to hear you saying that is, is really, really nice because that's part of my job is effectively as a filter. So if I haven't counted them, but there are definitely several hundred weather signs in the book. But for there to be several hundred weather signs in the book, I have looked at several thousand different pieces and decided, yes, that that is something I can bring into my journeys and I think other people will enjoy it. So if it's in the book, that's exactly the reaction I'm, I'm hoping for is that people will go, yeah, I quite like that. I'll, uh, yeah, I want to get amongst a bit of that. For those people that don't, um, that, that don't already know much about your work, could you give us some more examples like the moss of the kinds of things we're looking at and what they might mean? Okay, well, the the best best way for me to give a sort of a, a, a brief tour of that is is the is the um, journey is a bit of an overused word, but the, the yeah the, the journey I took through natural navigation, which which brought me to this idea that everything outdoors is a clue and a sign. So it start it starts with very very simple practical tools. You know, can you find the North Star, and then discovering it's within one degree of true north. And, and then, you know, the sun is due south in the middle of the day. And then you add quite a few more sort of sky clues. Oh, I can use the crescent moon to find south. And then there's a quite an interesting moment where you you start to appreciate that all of this stuff, stuff is more dependable than the kit um, in, in the rucksack. Uh, and, you know, if put another way, if, if the North Star is telling you north is one way and your compass is telling you it's another way, uh, you know, you, you've got to trust the star. <laughs> you know, by the time the North Star's getting it wrong, we've got bigger things to worry about. Um, and and it starts with that. And then there's a whole, there's a whole, a wonderful, rich um, art of natural navigation, which is much closer to the world we we move through. So the surface, the way I think of it, is the the sky leaves footprints on the ground. So the sun and the wind are changing everything we see outdoors. 
the tops of trees will be bent over by a prevailing wind, so from the southwest towards the northeast in the UK. Uh, but there are over 20, 20 different ways we can navigate using a tree. Um, and then this, um, there was a sort of tipping point probably about uh, a dozen years ago or so roughly where I suddenly realized that instead of, so for 10 years or so, I was a magpie collecting different techniques and thinking, oh, where am I going to find the next one? Uh, and as I say, it could be in an ancient text or it could be, you know, me crawling around amongst the undergrowth. Um, uh, and, and I don't know exactly when, it was more of a sort of process, but I suddenly realized absolutely everything is is a clue or a sign so um i'm looking out of a window as i as i look here um i can tell from by looking at a at a, a few hazel catkins that the wind direction has shifted a bit which would tie in with with you know the slight darkening with the sky and the, and the rain that's going to come but i can also see that the catkins are more uh are more um you know there are greater numbers on on one side of the tree and that's that's giving me a, a clue to south um Next to it, uh, I'm looking at the the, the shape of a, a spruce a spruce tree. Uh, again, I can see the the wind effects on that, but I'm also looking at the way the the bracken is mapping out where the light is reaching the ground, and that's making a compass for me. I could I could go on with uh, I'm looking at a bird flying to, to perch onto a tree. There, it is flying into wind. All birds, when they come to a halt, are, are flying into wind unless there's a strong reason to, for them to be doing something else. So. Yeah, I, I could I could go on, but basically, yeah, it's it's that absolutely everything um, is is a clue or a sign to something. Wow, uh, it it seems like you've sort of got to that point of mastery where you no longer have to think, and it just like you see this, it means this. Yes, it's it's really interesting the the different types of focus though, because I think we've all had that experience when you're in a, a passenger in a car uh, and. I joke, and it's you know it's, it's true sometimes. When if my wife and I are going to a going to a party, and uh, if I drive there, I know exactly how to drive back. But if she's driven there uh, and then tactically gets a couple of glasses of wine down and goes, "By the way, you're driving back," I sometimes have to say, "I have no idea the route back because I've allowed my mind to go in different places." You know, I'm thinking about what I'm doing the following morning or whatever it is like that. And it is similar for me, and I think everybody outdoors. And the the way I sometimes think of it is, we have we wake each morning with, with uh, like a currency. We have certain units of attention. Let's say we have 1,000 units of attention and we can decide what we choose to spend them on. We might choose to spend 900 of them on, on emails um, and 100 on, of them on Netflix. Uh, that's our personal choice. And a lot of my work is about sort of saying, I don't expect, you know, even I'm not spending 1,000 units looking, looking for clues outdoors every day uh, if it if that was true, I'd be dropping the washing up and things like that. So, so it's it's really a question of where that sliding scale is for you personally. And if you're, you know, I, I generally take the view that instead of shifting from spending all of your time thinking about non-outdoors, non-nature things, to trying to say, right, I've got three days in the diary when I'm going to really immerse myself and I'm going to really get amongst this and I'm going to slide that scale the whole way over. I think it is. Um, and it's true of so many disciplines, but this is another one. It is, be- it is best for me personally, and I, I generally sort of advocate this view and, and suggest it, that you just shift it, you know, to the level that's comfortable for you every single day. So just try and find 10 minutes every single day to, you know, just walk out there and, and say, I am not, I'm not going back indoors until I've spotted a clue, for example. It's just one, one way. And, and for me, nice. instead of it being one, it might be, it might be a, you know, a few dozen. But Do you find that that helps with mental health as well i can imagine that it's a very therapeutic way to spend your time yes um uh, it it is and it's a very good mirror like um some meditation techniques i'm not an expert in meditation mm. but i'm i'm familiar enough with it to understand some of the general things that are going on with it and mindfulness within nature i think is is related to this in the sense that it holds a mirror up to your priorities or what what you've allowed to you've allowed yourself to believe are your priorities so i mean a very good example is is if if i'm in a you know happy calm frame of mind i will go out there and i will love all the clues and we will have a great time together the clues and i i, I always personify them and you know they are characters and friends to me <laughs> uh, but if i go out there and I see a fantastic example of the way um you know a, a tree cone is 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 sort of telling me what the animals have done or something like that and i'm the thought pops into my head you haven't got time to look at that you've got to be doing something else 
I now know that that's almost a warning sign. Yes, there are there are times when work is so urgent or there might be, you know, a genuinely sort of urgent thing like you've left the oven on or something like that. But most of the time, the thought that pops in that says you haven't got time to look at that is nonsense. <laughs> it's it's like, you know, it is, um, oh, no, I, oh, I better get, you know, a present sorted for somebody because it's, you know, their birthday in a week or something, you know, it's something you know, like – how how is that yeah. thought you know bullying you out of appreciating the the, the moment you're having with the with the, the clue on the ground? It's, um, perhaps warning signs of too busy a mind. Here's a random question for you that I'm curious about: Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Firstly, I've never really known what it means. <laughs> Secondly, is there any truth in it? <laughs> Yes, uh, the, there's truth in it, and uh, almost all um, good weather law and and a lot of useful um, country wisdom comes from bolting two quite straightforward things together to create something that is is practical, useful, but also appears mysterious because you can't instantly tell what the two things are. And once you unpackage it and, and see what the two things are, it suddenly starts to make perfect sense. So red sky at night, which is which is the better known and the more dependable one. If we've got a red sky at night, there's one thing we can say with absolute certainty, which is there is not a lot of low cloud to the west of us, because then we wouldn't see the red sky is a sign that we are seeing most of the way to the sun. In other words, there isn't a whole load of thick low cloud between us and the sun, and the sun is in the west. So that's one quite sort of straightforward um you know, bolt, if you like. And then and then the nut that goes with it is that most of our weather comes from the West because the Earth rotates that way. You know, the Earth's rotating uh, towards the East, which makes most winds in the temperate zones come from the West. So we put those two things together and say, on the balance of probability, if you can see an, a long way in the direction the weather comes from, in other words, if there are not many big, low, thick clouds in the, in the direction your weather's coming from, odds are things are looking good. Uh, we we can add layers of complexity to that, but that's it in a in a nutshell. And the and the reverse is is true of um, red sky in the morning, shepherd or or sailor's warning. Um, it's it's the opposite thing. We're we're saying then that um, it's clear to the east, which is saying that you know your weather over the past six hours has probably been quite good. Chances are you've been asleep. Um, but if if we're noticing the redness, that the sun is picking up some cloud somewhere, and and very possibly uh, to the west of you, which is where you're your weather's coming from so it's the same logic just flipped on its head i see there you go see there is there's wiseties in these old adages that we uh think our mums are making up <laughs> wisety good word <laughs> um in your ted talk which i really enjoyed um you Thanks. posed a question at the end which was <laughs> and, and you, you joked that this was the polite version of the question uh is this really necessary <laughs> Um, and you gave it two answers. You said, on the one hand, if you just want to get to a, from A to B and you're just trying to do what you need to do, then no. And on the other hand, as we've already discussed, if you want to be fascinated, if you want to get more out of your experience in just being outside, then it's extremely valuable. Um, I'm going to pose a third answer, which is that surely some of these things must be really useful tools for people like mountain guides or know, river guides or who you could choose anyone, people that are kind of leading people in the wilderness. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you're, you're, you're totally right. There is practical value in, in all of all of this and hopefully in all of my work. But I, I frame it that way because I'm not, I'm not preaching to the choir. Mountain guides, mm. you know, if, if people who are professional outdoors people don't see the value in it, then they, that's a personal position they've they've come to, and I don't think you know they will have waded up. You'd be able to convince them otherwise. Yeah, they'll have their view. I, I might not agree with it, but it's it, it's their view, and they're they're entitled to it. So generally speaking, what I'm trying to do is take the whatever it is, ninety percent of the population who who maybe live in cities and don't don't immerse themselves in this world as much. I'm, I'm just trying to sort of say that these things are are cultural, by which I mean they. They, they add uh, a richness, uh, you know, a lot of culture is, is entertainment that gives us some insight into the bigger picture, whether it's um, human nature or character or, 
you know, every story we come across is effectively giving our, our brain a chance to role play how we would feel in the situation. You know, what would you do if your loved one was kidnapped and, you know, there was an avalanche at the same time, all this sort of stuff. Um, uh, you probably change movie at that point. No, no. Um, you, you know, so, so natural navigation is, is a different, it's a different story. It's, it's, um, it's sort of saying, you know, what, what would you do if somebody said to you, "You, you have to, you have to find the next, the next sort of kilometres walking, the most interesting you you possibly can in your whole life, other otherwise, you know, the world's going to explode." Now, I'm, I'm I'm joking, but the the the, the interesting overlap there is that if if we get into the habit of of constantly enjoying and noticing small signs, it's it we can get the best of both worlds. We get a level of satisfaction, fun, and enjoyment without necessarily always looking for a, pa- a practical payoff. You know, sometimes we'll look at the stars because we want to know north. We might look at the stars because we want to be able to tell the time if we've lost all our kit. Um, we, we might want to use the stars to forecast the weather. But, but sometimes we'll just want to enjoy them. But, but if, if, if you come at it from the perspective that I'm just going to look for what the sign is, it is incredibly hard for, for nature to creep up on you. So it's that that's that's the kind of fun the fun thing which which has a layer of practical value to it so if you're if you're an outdoors person that's generally the way i'd encourage it is not don't just take the signs that you think are going to get you out of jail or 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 save you from being hit by a storm by surprise because that leads to an approach and a philosophy where you're you're ignoring a lot of the stuff which gets you in that zone in the first place by which i mean if you if you only have a dozen signs to switch on you are your def- your default mode is going to be switched off. Whereas if you're thinking every little thing is telling me something, then the the, the shift in wind direction, the the change in the shape of a cloud, noticing it's ruffled at the bottom, changing you know a change in animal behaviour, none of these things sneak past you. So you get an extra you know it might be an extra half an hour, it could be it might be an extra twelve hours, but that's what I mean. It's Sometimes I think of it as a it's a, a giant game of grandmother's footsteps with with nature and and this skill set, you know, you, you know, you never the, the the storm or whatever it is never never manages to tap you on the back because you've always uh, you you know the game grandmother's footsteps. I actually don't know. Okay, yeah, no, I, I sometimes I, I I I've used example of Winnie the Pooh in certain situations in some of my books, and it turns out most Americans aren't familiar with that. So grandmother's footsteps is the game where. Um, some kids play um, where one person turns their back and, the, and then the other kids uh, have to creep up and get close enough to touch them. Okay, and every time yeah. the person turns around, if you're caught moving, you're out. I could be wrong, but I think when I was a kid, it was called What's the Time, Mr. Wolf? Yes. And they would say, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, they would say, oh, the time is four o'clock and you take four steps, right? Which is weird because then the person, yes, yeah. the person not looking, is controlling how close you get. So it's not a very logical game. But <laughs> yeah. yes, I, I, I think it's uh, there's, there's probably a few few riffs on the on the same the same concept. And maybe it's not the best example of what I'm talking about. All, all I'm really saying is that if we're finely tuned, then not much gets past us, mm. and quite often there's a practical value in that. But if we come at it from the view that we only want things that give us immediate practical payoff, the irony is we miss everything because we're, we're thinking, yeah. oh, wait a minute, that, that leaf fluttering to the ground there is you know, not, not giving me north straight away. Whereas if we come in a different way of sort of saying, well, what, what is that telling me? You're going, oh, right, yeah, well, that's, that's come off the northeast side of the tree because, yeah, it's, it's autumn and that was the, those are the last leaves left at the end of autumn because all the southwestern ones have been taken off by the wind and you're building this richer picture. You know, if, mm. if then you suddenly notice it, it, it doing something strange, you, you've built an awareness of the wind, which um, even, even professional outdoors people quite often um, let go of. It's, it's, I'd almost describe it more like it's, it's not like you're, you're getting these kind of quick tips. It's like it's its own language and it's all part of this tapestry that you're building it's kind of tapestry of understanding of how you see everything outside. I think language is a really exciting way of thinking of it because I've been very fortunate in the in the sense that that my books are read and, and popular around the world, and and I think that's because the clues and signs in nature is a universal language. So something I've noticed is if you if you meet people from another culture, they they may share the same taste in in 
literature, music, food, all sorts of things, but there's quite a high chance they don't. But there are certain things that every human being is, you know, automatically interested in. Um, so you might not like the same types of food, but everybody's interested in food and everybody's interested in, in water and, and drinking something of some sort. Um, everybody's interested in, you know, whether they're going to get enough sleep. Everybody's interested in sex. The list is actually not very long beyond that. And navigation is part of it. Every single human being navigates. They might not use the word navigation very often, but, you know, deciding your route from, you know, how to get to the bathroom in the morning, you know, uh, you get that wrong, you you trip over the, the stuff on the floor and it all goes wrong is, is a slightly silly example, but it, everybody is navigating. And within that, mm. we are, our ancestry is, is to, is to recognize the signs of how to go where we want to go. So that it is it is genuinely a language as in i mean put another perhaps better way you could pick anybody in the world from any culture even if they've had no contact with with um you know western um civilization at all uh and start looking at some of these things and and there's and there's a bridge there i mean when i when i've met in indigenous people uh funnily enough the um the example you gave, Red Sky at Night, Shepherd's Delight, I've shared that with a, a Bedouin tribesperson in the, in the middle of the desert. And they're where the patterns are slightly different, but they instantly got what the, the track I was on. And they were saying to me, when the wind blows from the south for four days, you get out of the wadis because there's going to be, there's going to be heavy rain. So that, that instantly, there was that, that bond, that connection, that, that our, the individual signs might have, might have been slightly different, but the, the language we were speaking was suddenly suddenly the same even if the you know the words we were using weren't weren't the same that is incredible that's really cool I, i'm always interested in things that can kind of breach language barriers um by becoming their own language if you will like music can do it dance can do it you know sport can do it um and now we know that natural navigation can do it as well um on the note of some of your travels could we hear a little bit about some of your solo expedition experience because you've done some crazy stuff <laughs> Uh, yeah, I it, it started. Um, it just went small, medium, large. I was I was um, a kid who would see a hill, and I I remember clearly asking my mum as a sort of eight, nine, ten year old, you know, is it all right if I go up that hill when we're on holiday or something like that? Um, I can remember one time we were in New Zealand, and um, I took my sister up this not very impressive hill. We were we were young kids, and we decided to roll down it as you do at that sort of age. And we spent the next 48 hours in real trouble because we were covered in, uh, covered in tiny scratches, but something uh, to this day, I don't know what it was, was irritating the skin, but that's, but, but the, and then I would see a, a pond or a lake and think, you know, how can I, you know, either make or get a little boat and get across it. And, and the, the hills became mountains and the, the lakes became oceans. And through that process, I discovered um, there were there were some big turning points, but but the general sort of process was, I came to realise that navigation is the is the difference between following in somebody's footsteps and shaping your own journey. And the thing that really excited me, even at a young age, was that that sense of um, ownership and control of the of the path I was taking. So, I found out in my pretty much by the age of twenty, I'd worked out that I wasn't that excited by you know pure altitude per se. You know, I can remember going up Kilimanjaro and thinking this isn't actually a hell of a lot more fun than the Brecon Beacons or the Lake District or something like that. And I, I was analysing why is that? And it's because there legally you have to have a guide. I mean, I wouldn't have tried to go up that solo anyway um, on a first attempt. But so so that was part of a process of realising that whatever journeys I was I was interested in, I had to have some I had to basically, whether literally or, or metaphorically, I had to be able to kind of throw the map over the table and decide what the line was going to be. So that led to um, some quite unusual journeys. So what I typically do is try and build up my understanding of navigation and skills and then give myself an expedition goal, which would kind of be both the reward and the, and the proving ground for it. So I can remember, um, I can't remember my exact age. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was sort of mid to late 20s where uh i i said to my um i said to my either girlfriend or or, or wife same person i i said uh, i'm going to play golf with a mate in um in morocco and she knew it was a lie because i i don't play golf but it was a way of both of <laughs> us relaxing about it and then i got a we we got into a small plane um uh and 
no, sorry, we sailed to from Southampton to the Channel Islands, got into a small plane there, flew down the coast of France and Spain, uh, jumped into a 4 by 4 in Tangier, went up into the high atlas and where the road stopped, we continued on foot to the summit of Mount Tukal, the highest point in North Africa, and then took a totally different route back doing similar stuff. And the simple aim, if, if that was, it was a pretend aim, was to get from um, England to the highest point in North Africa and back without buying a ticket. Uh, so that I was see. kind of the that's light. A, that's a brilliant title of the expedition if you like yeah it's a brilliant concept yeah it was it was good fun but it was also in the best way possible exhausting because it was pushing each part um you know my my mate marcus and i were pushing ourselves in in each stage of it um we were taking different roles and responsibilities at each point but we were pushing our our understanding of of how you get from a to b without a whole lot of help from other people Mm. i mean at one point we we had a plan to to land in San Sebastian in, in north northern Spain, and we actually we hit winds that were forty miles an hour stronger than we were expecting, and had to land in Biarritz. So we we were genuinely making it up in a sense as we went along. We ended up spending the night in a different country to the one we thought we would in the morning, um, and <laughs> and and then that led. So each time the the barriers would get pushed a bit, and the for me the kind of the underlining the moment where I felt okay, I think I'm you know, if not mastered conventional navigation, I got it to the level that, that I'd always dreamed of as a kid was was flying solo and then sailing single-handedly across the Atlantic. And that was uh, an extraordinary experience. It was seven years, um, you know, whilst working mostly full-time during that of, of preparation, planning and checklists. I often say there are, you know, spreadsheets of, you know, checklists, uh, individual spreadsheet that had a list of the different checklists on it. Um, and I still joke about those expeditions now because my wife, <laughs> my, my wife teases me. We'll be going for a family trip down to the beach, and, and she'll look at me like I'm a sort of, you know, errant, idiotic sort of nine-year-old, and say, "Now, have you remembered this?" And I sometimes have to sort of go, no. "Darling, I, I, you know, there were over one thousand items I had to have on the boat, you know, to to, to undertake it safely. I didn't forget <laughs> a single one." But it was it was quite um. If I'm really honest, it was an amazing experience, a privilege to have done it, and it did kind of draw that line as in I've got to where I wanted to get to. But quite early on in the seven years, I'd worked out that actually the reason I love navigation was not perfectly demonstrated by those bigger expeditions because I I didn't have the feeling I'd had as a sort of nine or ten year old. You know, you're flying solo across the Atlantic. In a, in a modern single engine aircraft is a, it's a mostly systems management job. You know, you can do 90% of it without seeing much out of the window. Uh, and you know, it's, there's adrenaline and you know, you, you, you've got the, the edges of a, you know, a, a, a valley near the wingtips and you, you know, if you make a mistake, you're going to die. So it's certainly, it's certainly not dull, but in terms of the joy of navigation, it wasn't quite as exciting as, as I might've guessed as a 10 year old. So, it was part of a process, but before I even did those expeditions, I'd begun the parallel um, development, which was natural navigation. And uh, it, it sounds sort of poetic, but it's genuinely true that my first my first time trying to get across a, a, a short you know short walk in the English countryside using just natural navigation, you're know, genuinely using things like um, the, the the sun and the trees and the flowers to find my way was. You know, it was that childlike joy again, which which I hadn't had in the um, at every time. You know, in, in an aircraft or even a small boat, there's there's as much worry as, as joy. Whereas if you're just crossing a woodland, and the, the worst that happens is you you feel like a bit of an idiot. You know, and it's it is genuinely fairly carefree and, and fun. So so there've there been there've been a lot of other expeditions. Um, I've taken taken sort of small boats and small aircraft to to quite a few places and done bits in the Arctic and things like that. But that's the that's the general sort of shape of it. And and these days I don't do an expedition unless I'm going to be pushing at um, a, a knowledge barrier. So I have I have no hmm. no great need or desire to, to to prove anything to anyone, including myself. Um, uh, if it's incredible fun with a mate that's a good reason if it's but professionally it's if i'm learning something so if i have to learn something from some people and the only way i can get to them is by doing an expedition that makes sense but i'm not uh i'm not looking for i'm not looking for you know um something that's a a first or a fast fastest i i I want to learn and i want to further Mm -hmm. the art that's that's really the motivation these days
I'm a big fan of the principle. I have no idea who said it. I should probably find out. I might be quote, quoting someone terrible. Hopefully not. <laughs> but the, the, the principle that by having 20% of the knowledge on the subject, you can often get up to 80% of the benefit. Um, what would you say is a really solid place to start besides buying the book? Um, what is like a, a, a thing that people could do on their lunch break today if they're, you know, if they're listening to this just before they go on their lunch break? What is something physical they can do immediately that will just start tuning them into these sorts of things? Yes, I, I, I think there's a, a fun, powerful way in, which is the question, which way am I looking? Uh, you don't even need to go outdoors. You can do it by looking out of a window and you just say, which way am I looking, north, south, east or west? If it's a, if it's a view you know like the back of your hand, it's not going to take you too long to answer that. Um, but just the process of doing that. And then you can say to yourself, okay, how many clues are there out there that are backing this up? Oh, there's a TV satellite mm-hmm. dish. That points close to southeast. And, you know, I, I know that the, the clouds have been coming from the, the, the east for the last couple of days. Uh, so I, I've used that. And that shadow there is ten- – so it's, it's a very personal choice how deep you want to go. But in, to answer your question, the fast way is, is, you know, which way am I looking? And if you, if you are looking at a view, you know, like the back of your hand and you know you're looking at your south-facing garden or something like that, then, then the, the alternative is pick one thing at random and find a clue in it. It doesn't matter how weak or random the clue seems to you. It's the, it's the process of asking the question, what is the clue in that? And I, I for, for the last sort of five years or so, whether it's interviews or talks or leading walks or whatever it is, to keep myself fresh and having fun and on my toes, I, I always say to people, it's an open invite. You can pick anything you want at random. You can do it now if you want. Just pick anything you've seen outdoors in the last, you know, week or year, uh, and, and I'll try and find a clue in it, you know, here and now. Should, should we do that? You can pick anything you want. Oh, God. I mean, it's difficult to come up with something without physically seeing it. Um... Yeah, it could be imaginary. It could be imaginary. Okay. Um, we're on a beach. I haven't decided what it's going to be yet. I'm just saying words. We're on a beach uh, and the sand level is a lot lower than it was the last time I was there. Okay, yeah. We've got um, we've got lots of fun things going on there. Um, if I had to guess, uh, it's winter. We got a lot more um, uh, re-sort re of sculpting and reshaping of beaches in winter with the, with the gales that, that do that. But in the, the beach shape itself, the, the levels will only make good sense to you once you understand that every, every sandy beach where waves break, i.e. every sandy beach, um, uh, has, its, has, its, has a distinct topography. And they all look unique. And this is quite often what's going on is that there's a, once we know the pattern, we see it behind everything. But until we know the pattern, it looks random. So in the case of a sandy beach, by chance, I, was, I, I, I did a, a 15K walk with my younger son yesterday, and it was almost all of it on beaches or near them. And so I was pointing some of this stuff out to him. So it's a nice, fun one. We didn't set this up. It, we, <laughs> um, but, um, so so what, what you find on sandy beaches is, is, is there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of beach face, which is the, the place where people put their towels, and it's a, a shallow gradient. Uh, then you'll see uh, a line of uh, small stones or broken um, uh, shells and things like that. And those, you can feel them under your feet sometimes. And then it suddenly goes a bit steeper, and that's called the step. Uh, and then you go down into a bit that's quite a bit deeper, which is known as the, the trough. The, sorry, the trough. And then the trough. I shouldn't struggle with a word like that. And then it goes up a bit, which is the bar. And that's why, particularly near high tide, if you go for go for a swim in the sea, it doesn't – you quite often – you don't often fall over, but you quite often feel it's uncomfortable because it goes steep and then it goes you know deep and then it goes shallow. Um and and that's what's happening there is it, it's the face, the step, the, the trough, and then the and then the the bar. Um, and once you know that pattern, you know where it suddenly goes a bit steeper. You might say to yourself, Ah, well, I can see if it, if that's the the trough it's happening in, that's quite often where the biggest wave action is. Okay, that makes sense. There was a storm, you know, that there was out in the Atlantic a couple of weeks ago that generated big swell. We saw those, you know, those four-foot waves here. We don't normally get four-foot waves here. That explains why the trough is bigger. You can then look at little, uh, the little patterns within the sand itself. The shape of the, the ripples in the sand will tell you the wave action and also which way the, the water's been flowing. So I could go on, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's the, the, the sort of the lines, lines of inquiry I've been following. <laughs> it's sort of um, 
I, I suppose it, it's kind of making me realize now that you do, you know, people that do this, you know, I've, I've, I, I surf quite a lot and there'll be certain towns that you'll go to where, you know, there's, I know a couple of people imbued who will always know exactly what the surf is doing. And, it, and it's only struck me now that what they're doing is looking at those signs and they're doing exactly what you do. And they're seeing signs and going, well, what does that mean? Uh, and then drawing conclusions from them to predict what the swell's going to be like and when when might be the best day to get in the water. And then and then similarly, uh, my cousin did a um, a hike. I can't remember exactly where he went from and to now, but he he basically walked most of the UK um, from one end to the other. And I met up with him not long afterwards, and he. Uh, we, we were just walking and he, he said, uh, we should probably go home. The rain's on the way. And I had a look around and I was like, I can't see anything like instantly, you know, there's not like gray clouds right there that clearly there's almost certainly going to start pouring down with the rain any moment. And he didn't tell me how he did it. Um, I think he's mentioned before that sometimes he'll notice temperature changes, um, and like he didn't really go into what they mean but he just said that now that he's spent so much time outside consistently for a long period of time constantly living outdoors he can now notice if the temperature changes a couple of degrees and make conclusions about what's about to happen as a result yes and that that um that's uh what, what i'm quite often doing in my my research and, and writing in the books is trying to bring into the the conscious um deliberate part of our brain what both indigenous people and and people from all walks of life uh, are quite often doing unconsciously so one of the things i've noticed in the past uh, and i've researched and written about this actual process is that if you interview somebody who is deeply experienced in something they aren't always the best at articulating what mm. they're doing but but the point i sometimes make is that's they 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 through no fault of their own they're quite often not great educators so what i'm having to do in my work is say well, they're not, this isn't random and this isn't actually, this isn't, you know, some strange voodoo. There, there are signs they're picking up and it's my job to work out what they are, to deconstruct it, to, to then give those tools to somebody else. And then what you find is if you use them repeatedly, uh, it then becomes almost automatic. So a good, a good example is, um, you know, in those, in those weather situations, uh, you know, if I was stood alongside your friend, I, I might weirdly be able to pick out some of the things that they had picked out so they they would be doing the same thing but my job as mm. a as a, a writer and a communicator would be to actually sort of say right it is the you know it is the the actual the shape of the base of that cloud it is the slight wind shift we're feeling it is that it is the change of temperature um it is the the, the change in smells um so i mean i i first got introduced to that concept in a very sort of intimate, personal way for me, which is that I started getting, and this does sound a bit weird, but I'll, 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 de I'll unpack it. I started getting signals from the environment without asking for them quite a while ago. So a good example is at night now, it sounds weird, but I, I find it impossible to not know which way is which because I'm familiar enough with the different constellation signs. So so <laughs> what started, you know, 20-something years ago as as, right, we look for the the plow and then we take that star and we go from that star to that star and that's north and oh let's check that with a compass oh wow it is actually north that's the start of a journey which ends up you know not not too not as far along as people would imagine where you're just suddenly sort of going well obviously it's north in the same way that yeah we wouldn't have to go through a, an analytical process to work out that we're looking at a tree whereas you know if you took a five-year-old who'd never set foot in a park or outside an inner city you, you may actually have to go, you remember those pictures we looked at, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not a stinging nettle, it's a different scale, you know, that is a tree, you know, I hope there aren't too many people in that category, but there might be some, you know, but and our brain is the same in all of these patterns. Once it's seen the same pattern repeatedly and attached, you know, bonded a meaning to it, that's what our brain has evolved to do. It doesn't want to spend a quarter of an hour, you know, head scratching difficulty trying to work out what stuff means. It wants to work it out instantly and get on to the next thing. So weather is very much in that category. But in the in the book, that's what I am doing is I'm saying, you know, here are in the case of whether it's clouds, here are the, you know, the 15 things to look for in terms of wind changes, here are the, you know, the dozen things to look for in terms of plant behavior, in terms of animal behavior. And if you if you pick your 
pick the ones most relevant to your outdoor experience and repeat repeat having fun with them it shouldn't feel like um homework uh then your your brain takes that shortcut i mean a really a really fun example related to that is uh coastal people very often and you're you're a surfer so you'll know what i mean you even when you haven't been surfing every day and you haven't built your your clock in tune with the tides of knowing that it's going to average 50 minutes later each day if you even if you but if you know a place well enough you'll get a sense of what the tide's doing and and if you're asked how have you done that yes it could be smell which is a bit obvious but quite often it's things like bird behavior you've noticed that in the in the local town you've gone to get your shopping and your brain has made a pairing there that you know every time you see the gulls doing that it's it's high tide and when you don't see any birds it's low tide because they're all down there foraging and things like that um so yeah these um these yeah yeah so you're you're, i went off on a bit of a tangent there but (laughs) hopefully it makes sense it does it's it's kind of mind-blowing to think that you know that that experience my cousins had and it even the fact that i knew that i can look at certain things on the beach and go ah we'll wait an hour we'll wait for the tide to come in a little bit further and then we'll get in that's it (laughs) um but you know you don't realize until you until it's shoved in front of your face you don't realize actually yeah i am already doing it it's just that i don't recognize those things and i'm not actively engaging with it um so yeah it's it's really interesting and clearly i think more accessible than people think Um, and that's what i quite like about the book is that you're taking what are easily quite intimidating and dense subjects of meteorology (laughs) and and making it um pretty attainable Thanks. Yeah. And, and for me, the golden, golden rule is it, 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 it has to be in the center is are things we can actually sense. So um, uh, I, I've had to take quite a few, uh, something that didn't make it into the book got, was, was cut out at the, in the first edit actually. It was quite sort of a long story about how I'd taken various meteorology exams in, in years gone by to get things like aviation qualifications and how um, I, I found, you know, with, with a bit of pain and sweat, I was able to pass them, but I'd, I'd walk out of a meteorology exam in a CAA porter cabin in Gatwick and look around me and just find what I'd done had no connection with what I was seeing around me. And I'm trying, you know, very hard, slightly scarred by experiences like that. Um, I, I wrote a book called How to Read Water where, you know, I was a qualified ocean yacht master and yet three out of four of the things I was seeing in the ocean, I didn't have any <laughs> I didn't have any relationship with you know that that really fueled a desire to kind of not just close the gap but almost turn it on its head and, and in the secret world of weather every single sign I think um, in there is not you know we're not talking about a- adiabatic lapse rates and things like that it's 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 um you know there, those there are. are things that uh, <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean it's, it's all good science and I have no, nothing but respect for meteorologists because they're They've made the world a safer place, and they're, of course. you know, they've given us in the book. I call it the known world. There is this kind of known world fifty feet above our heads, and they, you know, they they don't get caught out by storms um, these days. Uh, um, but uh, we are sensing a slightly different, slightly different world. I'm going to wrap things up with your three recommends. We ask this to every guest. We're looking for one film and TV, one music, so it could be an artist or a specific song or even a playlist uh, and one other which could be literally anything you'd like to recommend to people fire away what are we going for uh, film i'm gonna go for um dr strange love nice. uh, um uh, i i absolutely love it and it's um <laughs> i'll probably misquote it but you can't fight in here this is the war room um <laughs> and uh um book uh Catch 22 by Joseph Heller. Um, there's a bit of a kind of theme running through there, a kind of, you know, I, there's, a, there's a certain certain sort of humour when done very well gets me gets me very excited. Okay. And it, is the last one a, it was, a song, what, did you say? What, what, give us a brief synopsis uh, of the book. Uh, yeah, Catch 22 is um, the premise could put people off, but I really encourage them to, to get amongst it. The, the premise is that there's a there's an airman in the Second World War on a on a US airbase, but but stationed in um, Italy, if I remember correctly. But that's almost irrelevant. The Catch Twenty Two in question, and it's it's become a, an expression that has its own life and meaning, is that 
he understandably doesn't want to die in these very, very dangerous bombing raids. Uh, so he comes up with a plan to get out of them by, by telling, the, um, telling the doctor on the base that um, he's insane and therefore not fit to fly. And the, the doctor's response is, but only a sane person would be able to diagnose themselves as insane. Therefore, you are clearly sane. So get out there and fly some more missions. So the catch-22, and the expression didn't exist to the best of my knowledge before this book, it, it coined that term, is, is, is one where you, there is no way out because whichever way you, you take, you end up with the same um, outcome that you don't, you don't necessarily want. But these, that does no justice to the book at all. The book is all about a surreal... It's not even dark comedy. It's it's every character in it is is unique. Um, I wouldn't say everybody in the world will love the book, um, but but like all great art, um, it, it will leave some people cold. It will deeply irritate and annoy other people. But for some people, myself included, it is just uh, it's pretty close to perfection. There's a there's a lovely anecdote about it actually, where um, Joseph Heller uh, wrote uh, a few books after that, but none of them. Uh, reach the critical or, or sort of um, popular heights that Catch-22 did. And there was an interview where the journalist uh, asked the, um, or, or made the slightly sort of critical slash lazy observation that said, uh, you, you haven't written anything as good as Catch-22 since that, have you? And Joseph Heller's answer uh, was no, but then nobody else, nobody else has either. No. Um, <laughs> I think he, he was pretty much <laughs> okay so then your, your other then moving on to no sorry that was your other we're after music okay yeah music i would go for a a song called uh three days by jane's addiction um i don't know if you know jane's addiction or that song but it's um i don't what kind of genre what are we talking it's um i'm very very bad at, at getting my music labels right but it's it's some people call it unbearably heavy and a bit metally um but to me, it's it sort of starts, um, you know, with with a, a good sort of gentle guitar tune and ends. Um, it doesn't sound anything like um, what's that? Uh, Stairway to Heaven. You know how Stairway to Heaven, like Led Zeppelin, sort of starts in quite a sort of gentle sort of um, mm -hmm. gentle sort yeah. of way and builds, and it ends ends pretty full on. Three days was. Um, probably a good 20 or more years after after Stairway to Heaven. And it's in the, I think it was probably round about the Nirvana time that it was written and performed. Um, and it's got okay. some of that kind of grungy element to it. Again, like like anything I'll recommend, it, it, it won't be for everyone. Um, and, and we'll leave a lot of people uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> cold. But but um, for me, it gets me quite, um, quite buzzed. For me, it gets me Awesome. Brilliant. Uh, and also big respect for the fact that you recommended somebody else's book <laughs> rather than your own, <laughs> which I'm going to throw in as a second, uh, a second book recommend. Uh, the Secret World of Weather is available from the 8th of April, I believe. Yes, that's right. Thanks. Right now, as I speak, I'm facing north. How do I know that? I hear you ask. Well, two main reasons. Reason number one. I'm real clever. Reason number two, I also happen to live on the south coast and have the beach only about 200 meters behind me, so maybe not that clever, but still, it's a start. Thanks again to Tristan Gooley for joining us. I've been your host, Marcus Brown, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Osprey Podcast. Now go find North. Go find North.